We ask you to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11. This is going to be a part 2 of what we looked at last week. We're just using different verses, really, to consider the same types of things. Last week we looked at Psalm 1, and there we saw the comparison of the ways of the blessed or the godly and the ungodly. We saw there that the blessed or godly man or or woman would not submit themselves to ungodly influence of any degree. Rather, through the word of God and meditation upon it, the blessed, godly submits themselves to the influence of the scriptures, even meditating upon it, and then reaps the great blessing of being like a tree planted by the rivers of water, where we are left there to grow and to bear fruit to the glory and praise of God. Well, that psalm is very akin to what we're going to look at in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It, too, speaks in the end of glorifying and praising the Lord, and it, too, speaks of bearing fruit, and it also gives us some information of how we end there, how we end in a place that is glorifying and praising to God, bearing fruit along the way. So if you found those few verses, let me read them. Beginning in verse 9, Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We ask that you open this portion of it to our understanding. We give you the praise and glory for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we jumped right into Paul's opening thoughts to the Philippian church. It's been some years since we've studied this Philippian letter in its entirety back in 2017, believe it or not. The time has quickly passed, and that seems to be what time does. It rolls on, doesn't it? But this is particularly helpful, these few verses, because I think we would all say, I want to glorify God in the things I do. I want to bring him honor and praise. I want to bear fruit unto the glory of God. That's what we would all say if questioned. That's what we would all agree to if someone put it to us in in the form of a question. Is this what you want to do? And we would answer affirmatively, yes, this is what I want to do. How do we get there? What do we do to ensure that we are bringing God glory and producing fruit? Well, no coincidence that Ron read for us this morning the beginnings of the parable of the sower. Next week we'll read its explanation, but... We understand that this ultimately is the work of God, the work of grace in our heart, 
But yet there are still things that we are to do, to give our time and attention to. And Paul speaks to that in verse 9, 10, and 11. You'll notice that this is in the form of a prayer. Paul says, this is what I'm praying for you. And even that, or in that, it is a prayerful exhortation. Paul would often do that when you read his letters at the beginning or sometimes at the end. The things that he prays for a specific church or a specific individual like Timothy or Titus are also filled with exhortations. I'm praying for you, but I'm praying that you would do these things or that God would do these things in your life. And that's the pattern or the form of what verses 9 through 11 take. But you'll also notice that the beginning of his prayer, he says, I am praying that your love may abound. So we need to notice that love existed already. He was not praying for their conversion. Their conversion had already happened. He was not praying that they would assent to the message of the gospel and come and believe in Christ. That had already taken place. He's praying that from that foundation, they would grow. That's what the word abound means. But let's go back to verses 3 through 8 to prove the point that there was already love there. It existed and it was not absent. Verses 3 through 8, the proof of that. Notice what he says. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always and in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That's our first evidence or proof that the love of God in Christ existed in these Philippians. Because they were fellowshipping in the gospel along with Paul. He says, I am being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the second evidence. A good work had been begun in them already. Even as he's looking forward, he knows that this work will be completed in them. What he tells them in verses 9 through 11 is part of what he is asking that the Lord would complete. Then in verse 7. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as in both my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of me, with me, of grace. That's another evidence that love was there already. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. We look at that just to make the point before we go any further. Where the gospel has come in, love has come in. Where the gospel of Jesus Christ has come, the Holy Spirit has come into your life as well. And he produces in you, according to Paul in Galatians 5, love. The fruit of the Spirit is first and foremost love. Love to God, love to one another, love for his word, love for his will in your life, 
It can be expressed in many ways, but the point to be made is that where the gospel has come in power in your life, the spirit has come, then there is the foundation of love in your life. Now, you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, but I want to go back there and read the biblical definition of what love is before we go any further, because this is the foundation of every Christian life. Some call this the primary Christian grace. The love of God shed abroad in your heart that then extends itself out into your relationships and into those that you meet. It is the foundation for which we are evangelistic. We are loving Christ. Therefore, we are loving our neighbor. We are loving Christ and we are wanting to see others come to love him. So we go and preach the message of the gospel to them, right? But it's helpful every so often to go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and read the true definition of what love is. Because it's so counter-cultural to our culture's definition of love. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 4, he says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does Does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's the biblical definition of love. That's the love that has come into your heart and life when the gospel made entrance into your heart and life. These are very much the descriptive ways in which Christ has loved us. How many of us could say, yes, indeed, amen, a thousand times over. Christ's love for me suffers long. How often can we say that the true biblical definition of love that we see in Christ, love does not parade itself. Jesus did not come parading himself. He did not come in arrogance being puffed up. He did not seek his own. And you could run through that whole list. This is the type of love that was there even in infant form, we might say, in the Philippian church. Paul says it's there. Now grow in it. It's there. Now fan its flame. So that it will grow even more and more and that it would be abounding. Now, when we read the letter as a whole, we understand that there were some things going on in this Philippian church that needed to be addressed. And they needed to be addressed with the authority of the apostle. And that's what he does. It reminds us that all churches have some type of issues, right? Why is that? Because churches are made up of people like me and you. Churches are made up of people with issues who are trying to submit them to the authority of the scriptures. And to have God rule and reign in their hearts. 
And so even though the foundation of love is there, Paul says it needs to grow. At least two reasons for that we can gather as we read this letter. First, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul says, I implore Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul is here writing about that there is in existence in the Philippian church a disagreement over inconsequential matters. So much so that factions had been formed, sides had been taken, and he is here imploring them. That's a strong word. It means to beg. He is pleading with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. How many churches have been derailed over inconsequential matters? Hundreds, thousands. But secondly, the second reason that we would see that he is asking them, praying for them, seeking the Lord's help and work in their life to grow on from where they are is in verses 1 through 3 of the third chapter. Not only were they struggling with inconsequential things, but they were not discerning. That's told to us in verses 1 through 3. He says, finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. What is Paul talking about there? He's saying beware of false teaching, false teachers. If you read the context who were trying to bind you back, who are now living free in gospel grace, they are trying to bind you back into some form of legalistic religion. And apparently the Philippian church was having trouble discerning who these teachers were and discerning the real truth of the gospel from error. Because Paul goes to great lengths to address these things. So when we take both of these together, the issue in chapter 4 and the issue in chapter 3, we see that relationships to one another and relationship to the truth of God is why Paul would say that this group of people, these believing people, need to go on and abound in love. Let's go back to verse 9. We've given some definition to love here. This is the familiar Greek word agape, the selfless, self-sacrificing type of love with which we have been loved by the Lord. It's there in existence, but Paul is saying it needs to abound still more and more. So let's stop, ask the question, how does love grow? How does the Christian grace of love in me grow? How do I grow to love God more? How do I go to love how do I grow to love Christ more? How do I grow to love the scriptures more? How do I grow to love my neighbor and then my brother and sister in Christ? How do I how do I grow in my love to them? The answer is found in 
two parts when Paul says that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. And on the beginning of this, we can we can see what Paul means just with the basic observation. The more I know of God, the more I should and will love him. Right. The more I know of Christ, the more love I will have for him. The more I know of the word of God, the more love I will have for it. But we need to structure this in two parts. The way that Paul does here. And we need to see that there are real steps to follow in obedience to Christ and his word that will fan the flame of the love that already exists in us. But we need to be careful. There's a warning to be found here as well. And the warning is to be found in the marriage of knowledge and discernment. The verse does not read, I pray that your love may grow in knowledge. Nor does it only say, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in discernment. The verse reads, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. We have to have these two things together. And we need to try to, as best we can, define each biblically and see how they are wed together and how we can't have one without the other. Recently, I had a conversation with a young man, no one in this church, and he came to me and he said something like this. This is not verbatim. But he said, I really am getting the sense that I'm growing away from my church. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He says, the more I read the scriptures, the more I I study these things, I see things. And the Lord is teaching me things. There is knowledge there that I didn't used to have. And this is just not where my church is. I feel like I'm, I'm growing distant. What do I do? What do I do? How would you answer that question? A person comes to you and says, I love my church. I love the people there. I love my pastor. I love the deacons. I love my brothers and sisters. But it just seems like I'm growing apart from them. Well, great discernment is needed, right? We don't want to frivolously just just go out and, and spew something off as some course of action for a person like that. We want to try to be biblical. We want to be encouraging, exhort them to patience, but also recognize that sometimes as the Lord grows an individual Christian, things like this happen. That's part of maturity. That's part of growing in grace. And that's why it's it's important that we find a place and a group of people where we can grow together. Where the truth is central. Where what we see in the scriptures is loved and adored and gloried in. The type of knowledge that Paul speaks of here is more than just an intellectual knowledge. 
It's more than doctrine and facts and data. It's a knowledge that goes beyond that, and it's the knowledge of God. It's to really know the Lord. It's to really know His Word. It's to have an intimate relationship with the Father and the Son in His Word as being taught by the Spirit. It's the knowledge of God and Christ. What's the warning that Paul gives about knowledge in another place? He says knowledge puffs up, makes you arrogant, makes you proud. So the knowledge that Paul is speaking of here includes intellect. It includes doctrines and facts and data, but it is also a spiritual knowledge that comes through relationship with Christ. It's also a personal knowledge that is your relationship to Christ. It's not just filling your head with facts. It's not filling your head with with even good Bible facts. If that alone is all that we have, then we have to heed the warning of Paul. Be careful. Be careful that all of this knowledge isn't puffing you up. This type of knowledge alone produces in us a hypercritical spirit and rarely associates for long with others whom we deem to be less knowledgeable. I'm going to say that again. And I hope that you're in agreement. Knowledge alone, for the sake of having knowledge, for the sake of having a head full of of biblical facts stored, if that's the only end goal, that type of knowledge puffs up, makes us arrogant, and produces a hypercritical spirit that rarely associates for long with others whom we deem to be less knowledgeable. Have you ever met someone like that? Are you that person who holds what you know over someone else, and if they just don't measure up, then you just can't be around them for long because you seemingly know more than they do. That's a real danger for every growing, maturing Christian. We want to grow and mature in our knowledge. We are told in several places, we are exhorted in several places to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But notice even there, there are two things that are wed together, grace and knowledge. Here, the wedding is between knowledge and discernment. And I like how one commentator puts it. He says, the knowledge that is in view here is a spirit-wrought, Christ-centered, Scripture-saturated knowledge. That's what we desire. And that must be what Jesus had in mind when he said in Matthew 22, verse 37... He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and mind. You and I cannot love the Lord our God with our minds only. We certainly cannot love our neighbor with our mind only. We certainly cannot love a brother or sister in the Lord with our mind only. Has to be heart 
real, true, sincere love mixed with our mind, what we know. So that's the first part. That's the first way that our love grows in knowledge, not just in facts, not just in data, not just with the amount of books we read last year and how many books we'll read this year. But how that knowledge works its way out is what Paul calls discernment. I want you to think of it this way. These are some definitions of discernment that have proved helpful to me. Discernment is the tempering of knowledge. So now you know all of this stuff. Good. How do you use it? That's discernment. Many would define it as the application of what you know. You have a head full of knowledge. How do you apply that to real life? How do you apply it to your relationships with God, Christ, His Word, your brother, your sister? You can also think of it this way. Discernment is the maturity of knowledge. It's the flower, if you will, or the fruit that knowledge bears. If knowledge is acquired in a healthy way and and under a good motive, then discernment is the flower or fruit of it. And then we find that we are indeed growing in love and abounding still more and more. You know, it is possible for a Christian with a head full of knowledge to do harm to himself, to those that he loves the most, those that he is closest to, if there is no discernment mixed with it. We have to agree with the scripture that the truth of God, the word of God, does indeed cut Like a knife, that's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 4. So the knowledge or truth of God cuts. Jeremiah went so far as to say that the word of God is like a hammer. But the word of God never leaves a person destroyed in a heap. It always, always builds him or her back up. God does not tear down for the tearing down alone. He tears down to build back up. That's what real, true knowledge of the scriptures in love and discernment does personally for us and in the lives of those around us. Did you notice as we read 1 Corinthians 13, one of the definitions of love is that it rejoices in the truth. That's verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. I wonder if you've ever heard this phrase. I don't, I don't know to whom it was original. Have you ever heard this? The person that loves you the most is going to tell you the most truth. Has that proven to be the case in your life? The person that loves you the most is going to speak the most truth to you. That reminds us of what Paul would write in another place in the book of Ephesians. That we are to speak the truth in love. To speak the truth in love does not mean that we cannot say real and truthful 
even hurtful things that are based upon the truth of Scripture. But what it does mean is we, like I've already said, will not leave that person without some way to be built back up. We don't just go in with the truth of God and begin to cut without the accompanying desire to build back up. But when we begin to think about this word discernment, how to apply the knowledge that we know. We spoke about this a little earlier in our Sunday school hour, but I think it's it's helpful here as well. When you think of of love, knowledge, discernment, and if you want to lump those other two together, knowledge and discernment in a Christian life that is maturing into the glory of God, these things grow on the same level. At the same rate. You've been around the person who is all love and no knowledge, right? Perhaps you've been around the person that is all knowledge and no love. Neither of those are balanced and healthy. But on the occasion that you are around a person that is both full of love, that is based upon knowledge and discernment, there is a difference. There is a difference in the way you relate and the way that they relate with you. Very often you can tell immediately, yes, they are saying truthful things to me that may sting, but I know that they're doing it because ultimately they love me. Don't shut that kind of person out of your life. Very often that kind of a person is a gift of God. And they, when doing that, most often have come to you in fear and trembling. That kind of a person that will speak truth to you in love is a great blessing. Hear them. Hear them, even as you compare what they say with the scriptures. This word discernment here in verse 9 is an interesting word. It's only found here in all of the New Testament in the original language. It's only found here in this form. It's found in a very similar form in Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to go there and read what Paul says there because I think it's immediately applicable to these verses. If you know Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, Paul is there exhorting the believers to maturity. And he's even going so far as to chastising them because of their immaturity. If you go and read those two chapters, you could summarize what Paul is saying In this way, in a sense, shame on you. You should be further along than you currently are. You should be further along in your walk with Christ. Let me read those verses. Beginning in verse 12 of Hebrews 5. He says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use... Have their senses exercised to discern both good 
and evil. So there's the word again. To discern both good and evil. And Paul is saying there that you should be able to do this by now, but you're not able. You need milk, not solid food. You are a, a spiritual babe in Christ, perpetuated by your lack of discipline and by your lack of pursuit of knowledge and then its accompanying discernment. Paul goes on, if you were to follow that line of thought, all the way down into verse 1 of chapter 6. He gives a strong, strong warning in this 6th chapter. It's the warning of not progressing. He says, and I keep saying Paul here. I realize the writer of Hebrews is somewhat unknown, but... I'm in good stead, thinking that Paul wrote it. He says in verse 1, Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves, the son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, however you deal with those verses and there's different ways people deal with those, you have to deal with it in the context of of immaturity and the lack of progression. And in that sense, it sounds as a a loud warning for the type of person that is the same today as they were last year, two years, three years, ten years ago, who have not progressed in the knowledge of God. I think it's important as we go back to Philippians 1, 9, 10, and 11 to see that Paul here says that knowledge and discernment are indeed two different things. They are not one and the same. We need them both. You really can't have one without the other. And be on the way to Mature thought as a Christian. So here's the summary of these verses. And here I use the words of David Strain. He says, if love is the overflow of the affections of the heart, Paul is teaching us that those affections are inflamed and informed by knowledge of the truth. And they are guided and directed by discerning practical wisdom for life. And here's the helpful part of this. The picture that the apostle paints is of Christian maturity characterized by heart, head, and hand. All three working in perfect harmony. If you want to be a blessing to those around you, if you want to bear fruit under the glory of God, then you will exhibit this kind of harmony. Your heart, your head, and what you do will all be in harmony. Get one of those things out of balance and knowledge has puffed you up to the point of being arrogant and no one's going to hear you. 
I don't know about you, but it's not, at least my own experience, it's not a, a real blessing to be around someone who only wants to impart what they know to me when I know that they aren't doing so because there's love there. That's condescending. Makes me feel small, makes you feel small. And that's what I mean earlier when I said it's those kind of people that just won't stay around for long. They'll move on. Because they deem everyone else too inferior. I read something this week that was helpful to me in this area. I want to share it with you. Because as Christians, sometimes we... We like to shoot across the lines at other believers who might hold a little different perspective than we hold. And even in those things where we can go to chapter and verse to support our position, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm not saying that very often that can be helpful. But this is the reminder. Remember who the real enemy is. The real enemy is Satan, the father of lies, not your brother who holds a different position. The real enemy is the distorter of truth to the sense that it damns those who believe it. Not the brother or sister who thinks a little differently than you do based upon their reading of Scripture. So it's helpful to keep your sights on who the enemy really is. And there's a lots, a lots, there's a lot of shots fired by Christians at other Christians that are not fired in love. Sometimes we forget who the enemy is. Lord, help us to remember. But if we go back to these verses, we're drawing to a close here. Notice that there is an end to what Paul is saying. And just to quickly reiterate, he's praying their love would abound, but he's given some parameters. He's given some guidelines. He's given some direction in what it looks like if love that exists already is to grow. It's going to grow through knowledge and then the right use of that knowledge, discernment, leading to verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. We might call this the pursuit of excellence. That's what we as Christians, that's the pursuit that we're on. Not in excellence so much of ourselves, but in the pursuit of the excellent, trustworthy truth of God. The word approve here means to test or to try. And again, it points back to discernment. Moving forward into chapter 3, verses we've already read. This is what apparently the Philippians in some form were lacking. They were not testing and trying the things that they heard. But yet there's more. There are three results of what Paul has prayed and through his prayer has exhorted the Philippians to. Notice them here. That you may be sincere and without offense. The word sincere means to be real. The illustration that's often given with the word in its literal meaning without wax. What that means is very often a clay pot that was cracked. 
would be filled with wax so that the crack was concealed and passed off to be whole and sound. It was not sincere. As Christians who are growing in love through knowledge and discernment, seeking to prove those things which are excellent, the first result is that we would be sincere and without offense. It would be real in our dealings with one another. The second result is that we would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Filled with these things. And then the third result is that we would be to the glory and the praise of God. And it's in that last result that I think we all find agreement. This is where we want to end up. I want to find myself right here in the 11th verse of first, or excuse me, of Philippians chapter 1. Filled with fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. This is where I want to be. Now, take that another step and ask yourself, how are you going to get there? How will you get there? And you have to rewind, don't you? Go back to verse 9. This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge, in discernment, that you would approve the things that are excellent. And notice discernment here, the type of discernment that's in view goes beyond just distinguishing good from bad. That's somewhat easy, right? Distinguishing good from evil The discernment that's in view here is the discernment that separates that which is good from that which is better or even best. The separation of good and evil, the youngest believer very often can see that. It's the separation of those other finer things that comes with time and study, knowledge, discernment. And love, but yet we're called to them none the same. So I hope that you can take these verses and use them as a model and pray these things for yourself. Pray them for me. I'll pray them for you. Let's pray them for one another. Why? Because it's glorifying to God. The end result. If he were to answer these prayers in all of our lives, the end result is his glory, his praise. We don't seek these things for ourselves. If, if that's the motive, if the motive is selfish, then knowledge has puffed us up. If we want to show others what we know and not love them in the showing of it, then we are the sounding gong that Paul opens 1 Corinthians 13 about, the clanging symbol. So Lord, help us as we grow in love to grow in knowledge and discernment at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for this exhortation that comes to us in the form of a prayer. 
Lord, I desire this for myself. I desire it for all of us here. Lord, I'm thankful that you have indeed begun a good work. We're thankful that you will complete it even unto the day of Christ Jesus. Father, help our love to abound still more and more. Our love to you as our Father in heaven, our provider, our King. Help our love to abound toward Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, elder brother and friend. Help our love to abound toward the Scriptures, Lord, so that we see in them more and more the rule of life and the glories of our Savior. Help us to abound in discernment. Help us to rightly use the knowledge that you give us. Help us to hold it in great humility and meekness, even as we have Christ as our greatest example. Help us to prove the things that are excellent. Help us to have a a desire, an increasing desire and appetite for the glories of the Word of God. Help us to be sincere, to be real, not hypocritical, not standing in judgment over our brother just to exalt ourselves. Help us to be without offense till the day of Christ. Lord, by your spirit, as these things grow in us, may the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, become more and more apparent and numerous. Lord, we pray that it would all tend and end to the glory and praise of God. Lord, we ask you to do these things in us humbly because we know that it ends in the praise of of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.